You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm joined today, this is actually the first conversation I've ever had with this individual, is uh, Stan Dutton told me I should reach out to you, Taylor. So this is Taylor Eckel. I know absolutely nothing about you other than what I've seen on uh, Instagram. I want to let you give a quick little uh, bio about yourself before we get started. Yeah, so I just graduated from George Fox University with my doctorate in physical therapy. Uh, So really excited to be on to the next chapter of being a real physical therapist. I'm originally from the East Coast, but found myself on the West Coast through life circumstances and stayed for grad school. And now I love it. And my friends have assured me that I have definitely assimilated. Um, And in my free time, I love, actually, I love physical therapy enough to do it as a hobby. So in my free time, I actually spend a fair amount of time just reading and being a dork. Um, But I also love getting outside, snowboarding, playing pickup sports when uh, pre-pandemic at least and hanging out with friends. So really excited to have this conversation. I know you don't always run into people who are similarly passionate about dynamical systems theory. So this should be fun. That's true. And the good thing is you're young enough where the industry itself just hasn't crushed your spirit yet. So you should, uh, (laughs) you should have enough energy. We'll see. You know, it's funny. I started my first job in physical therapy in 2008. I was a senior in high school, and I was kind of aide front desk person for a little small startup clinic. And then I just been working in different clinics, you know, on and off all throughout undergrad, then full time for several years after uh, undergrad before PT school. That's also when I got into personal training. Um, and I feel like the more I see, two things happen, right? One is I just get really upset about the industry as a whole, and then the other thing is. I realized that there's still so much to learn. That makes me super excited to be in the industry. So it's <laughs> I, uh, both ways. I totally get what you're saying. Like I've, uh, I feel in every profession, right? So yeah. you always have these, like even in life, you get these teenage angst years where you kind of rebel against your parents because it's like, fuck them, I'm going to do my own thing. And then you kind of come around and you realize that like, yeah, what they say is a little outdated, but they had good intentions and they were kind of right about a lot of things. Like I feel <laughs> even in a, uh, like for me as a coach, like I've had those teenage angst years where it's just like, no, everybody else is wrong. I know what I'm doing. I've, I've read these things. And then the more you try to practically apply it, you just start realizing that like, you know, these guys who've been doing it for a long time, there's a reason why they did it that way. And in a lot of cases, maybe... <laughs> Maybe their explanations weren't entirely um, correct with why they did the things, but there's there's kind of like two ways that you learn, right? And I feel for me, you know, undergrad, grad school, it's a lot of reading, very little practical application of things. Um, and then you get those like, so I'm just going to use powerlifting because that's what we are. We're a powerlifting podcast and 
that's what I coach. These like older powerlifters just, they kind of just tried things and found what worked over time. Like there's two separate, there's like two separate means of education in those, in those situations. And like, I feel you need a little bit of both as you move, as you move along. And so like that experience that you had in high school and like working in clinics and stuff, I think that's, that's a lot more valuable than I think in a lot of cases, what people will actually give it credit for. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I yeah. kind of underestimated how helpful it would be. I very much came into PT school with the mentality of like, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff. I love this field, but I still have a ton to learn. And that's all of that's true. But there's something to be said for when you're talking about a concept or diagnosis or condition, and I can put more than one face to that thing, right? Um, And it just helps you ask different questions too, I think, when you've seen things play out in real life versus the textbook presentation. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. So the reason that Stan introduced us is because I use a dynamical systems theory approach in the way that I coach things. And apparently you do a very similar thing with it. So I'd like to hear your story and how you kind of stumbled across a theoretical framework of motor control. And then we'll get into some of like the more like practical application side of things. Yeah, I was really fortunate in that I actually discovered it in PT school my very first semester. Um, my neuroanatomy professor was phenomenal, Dr. Andrew Mazaros, and he introduced that actually in, without naming it as such, he introduced that in day one of PT school orientation. Um, and that really caught my attention. And then as it, things kind of unfolded into PT school and uh, took motor control my second semester, which was definitely taught through a very you know, dynamical systems heavy perspective, that was then also, in, um, I guess it bled into you know, more clinical classes, right? So whether that was neuro rehab or pediatrics, which is quite revolutionary in the world of pediatrics because that whole realm typically operates in a really silly um, arbitrary framework, but that's a different tangent. Or even you know, orthopedics then too, right? How do we understand you quote unquote movement dysfunction um, when we understand a patient's presentation as their movement solution to their set of so-called problems? It really can then change the way you approach changing their movement. One of the uh... Well, what was the name? The Shirley Sarman textbooks was one of the ones that were like heavily used for me in grad school. So like you brought up the term dysfunction. So earlier on when I was coaching, like that's kind of the framework that I always utilized. Um, What I really liked about it, like being an experience with it is it lays out, it takes something that's extremely complex and extremely variable, right? Like you never move the same way twice. So at the time that I'm being introduced to this text, like these thoughts aren't going through my head, but it's like, oh yeah, okay. So if I can do this test and they can't do it, it gives me answers, right? So it's like this safety blanket as a coach or as a clinician where you get these these assessments and these tools and like somebody comes in with these problems and it just, it makes you feel a lot more comfortable navigating an extremely uncertain world, so to speak. Um, Was that stuff still heavily 
taught in the school that you went to and how how was that merged if the two worlds were taught at the same time how were those kind of merged together yes Simon's stuff was not taught at all um i read a little bit of it on my own and then we actually had somebody that had like was a guest speaker that was talking about that and she um i felt kind of bad because she did like this public lecture and then open q a and some of my professors like absolutely very professionally very kindly politely but their questions just destroyed her entire argument and it was really interesting to see that play out um in terms of how we were taught about dysfunctions it was almost from a more historical approach, I would say that, you know, oh, this is traditionally how posture has been assessed. Um, and then here are considerations for whether that matters for the person in front of you or not. Or, you know, I, I think a great example would be, you know, that kind of classic, you know, patient prone on the table, can they extend their hip and do, you know, without firing their back extensors first is like one of the I feel like that's like the Mount Rushmore of MSI <laughs> <Yep>. bullshit. <laughs> and, you know, okay, so some people postulated this. Let's look at the research of normative data for healthy controls, right? Oh, they're all over the map. So maybe this test isn't clinically useful, right? And so I think they did a really good job of presenting this is the line of thinking that has been dominant over the past 20, 30, 50 years. And this is where we're at today. Um, and I think it's really helpful that we can have that historic perspective and understand like that's how science works, right? You have an idea, you test it, and then you come up with a new question and you test it and it just keeps going. And so you have to understand where we came from in order to understand where we are now. And I think it also then helps you understand um, where someone's at because I know I've definitely had conversations with athletic, I'm thinking of an athletic trainer in particular who used that test really heavily with a lot of her basketball players. And she was saying, you know, they all have glute dysfunction because none of them can do this without, you know, activating their spinal extensors first. And instead of with her, instead of getting right into, well, like what relevance does that have to basketball? Because she was so bought into this is a way of assessing athletes and providing value to them. It's easier to then say like, oh yeah, I've heard of that test. Have you ever looked at normative values for healthy controls? Um, and I think that can give you more tools, understanding the history of an idea can give you more tools for how you approach discussing it or challenging it. One of my biggest problems with like assessments like that. So you have that athletic trainer assess that their glutes, glutes aren't firing first. Do you remember what the first exercise that they would go to in that situation. Is it, it glute sets? <laughs> like try some type of like hip lift or some unloaded movement. Right, right. So when you have these basketball players playing at a high level, like every time they jump, think of how many times their body weight, right? Six and a half times right. their body weight is probably landing on their legs and you're gonna start preparing them for that sport with unloaded body weight movements to try to fix some firing pattern problems right like and to like, me I, that's just yeah that's how you, you end up fucking somebody up it's, yeah. you're not preparing them to handle loads you're literally doing you're detraining them right and so I, it was funny though because she was super open to conversation and she and i had already kind of had that conversation the day before without the athlete there so then she had said the next day like hey why don't you try some of the stuff you talked about with him 
Um, and so I talked to him a little bit. He was very much hung up on this idea of, oh, my back hurts because I have extend. I'm, I'm very extended and I can't fire my glutes. And I just looked at him. I said, can you dunk off one leg? And he's like, duh. Like, yeah. You know, the guy's like 19, 20. And I was like, do you think if your glutes weren't firing, you'd be able to dunk off one leg? And he just started laughing. <laughs> and, and the athletic trainer was kind of like, oh, <laughs> you know. Yes, his glutes are firing fine. He can, he can jump off on like the dunk. He's fine. Like, that's not the issue here. But I think where we sometimes get in the weeds a little bit is this idea of, like you're saying, yeah, we can do this assessment that has no relevance to the sport or the, you know, the task or their goals in general and think that it gives us answers. And then, yeah, it sends us out totally wrong treatment pathway. But then I think the other danger is having this idea of like, well, if it's not their sport or a component of their sport, then it doesn't matter at all. Like, why would I do it? Um, and so I think one way that I've kind of approached this idea of a movement solution as, you know, an emergent quality is thinking, how can I expose them to novel strategies that to accomplish the same task that maybe they haven't done before that will in turn then be something they can incorporate into the way they do their sport or their task. So I'm just using this basketball player as a little bit of a case study with him never being able to feel, quote unquote, feel his glutes. Like I'm not going to hang my hat on that as any sort of meaningful observation. But what I did consider is maybe there's this possibility that this guy is using less glute dominant strategies to move. And maybe if he has more total possible strategies for how he moves, he will be able to say offload his back extensors selectively. And you know, similarly to the way that a marathon runner, right, will change their foot strike, foot strike implicitly over the course of the marathon, right? So if we think about him doing, you know, jumping off one leg to dunk and some of his hip extension force is coming from his back and some of it's coming from his glutes. If he has more of a sliding scale of how he can self-organize when he jumps off without thinking about it, maybe he'll feel a little bit better. And so for him, it was just putting him in positions where he couldn't extend his spine, but had to extend his hip. Um, and he was blown away, like just by how much his, that lit up his glutes. And I think just giving him a different way of moving kind of broke the cycle for his pain. And then he was like, Oh, I can go play and I feel better. One of the, um, like, so I think in a lot of cases, like in strength and conditioning, you try to, coaches who try to alter their mechanics right and like as a powerlifting mm -hmm. coach like torque is important right because it's not necessarily who's the strongest and most powerful it's the strongest and most powerful one who can actually control torque right so if we're deadlifting right. that bar comes away from the body you're not going to have the same performance as if you kept it close so of course there's like especially lifting really heavy objects there's often there's optimal ways to do it and stuff so like i don't want this to yeah. get because technique matters but if you start having a basketball player focus on the technique of how they jump you've just taken a college athlete and brought them all the way back to being a beginner in terms of motor control they're cognitively aware of what they're trying to do that slows them mm -hmm. down now they're aware of that oh if i do it this way i might get hurt like you've made them a worse athlete and literally increased their risk of getting injured totally so, but if i put him in like a side plank and up against the wall and say push into the wall as hard as you can in my mind, then that's creating a context of, oh, hey, I can extend my hip without my back kicking on, and this feels really good. 
and now he has one more movement strategy at his disposal that he doesn't even have to think about. Right, exactly. And like one of the, yeah. uh, so like for me as a coach, what I, you know, if somebody's in that type of position, you know, if they're using a lot of their lower back and their hips and their hamstrings aren't contributing, we're going to put them in positions to load their hips and their hamstrings so that they, exactly. they can't get away with it, right? So like the loads don't change. You just kind of find those. I think in a lot of cases too, um, I don't, you know, in the strength and conditioning world, I think what people want to do is they want these like sports specific strength and conditioning programs. And it's like, dude, all gym training is GPP. Like their sports specific training is literally done playing their sport way yes. too frequently than what they play anyways. Like just train them in angles that they typically don't train and get them stronger. Like that's your best, get them to build up some work capacity, of course, but like to tolerate loads because over the course of the year, that's what they need. They need to be able to tolerate loads. Like if that kid's dunking with people around him and landing funny, like you best be strong at a whole bunch of different angles so you don't get fucked up. And I think right, that's what like, it's, it becomes this whole, look at me, look at how smart I am because in basketball you do this. So as a strength coach, like we, we lose the ability to keep it simple sometimes, but go ahead. You were about to say something. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, sometimes when you run the risk of people saying, I have this conversation with classmates all the time, like, well, isn't that cookie cutter if a lot of your patients are doing the same things for multiple different conditions? And I'm kind of like, yes and no. Yes, it's cookie cutter in that, yeah, most people benefit from some form of a hinge, some form of a squat, some push, some pull. Um, but the where it becomes more nuanced, right, is in the parameters we're providing the dosage, the education. Um, I think those are ways that coaches can stand out. I think another point to your uh, comment about trying to make gym exercises look sport specific is just in general, I think coaches and PTs are so trained that the way it looks is what matters. And we sometimes fail to neglect or fail to recognize you can perform a task with two different strategies and it'll look exactly the same. And I think that's something um, uh, that has been really helpful for me understanding that is, are you familiar with any of Tasha's stuff? I don't think so. Yeah, he's out of, I think, University of Pennsylvania or Penn State. I can't remember which. Um, but anyway, this is a, a concept that was introduced really early on in PT school is he has this uncontrolled manifold hypothesis, which is this idea that, you know, to accomplish the task at hand, there's a, you know, if you picture like a linear relationship, you can accomplish the task successfully with a variety of combinations of variables, right? And so, you know, my squat can look one way, it can look one way, and I can accomplish that through creating torque differently, right? Like, Maybe I'm plantar flexing really hard isometrically to drive, you know, my ground reaction force forward so I have less demand on my quads, right? And it'll look exactly as if I'm not doing that unless you put me on force plate or something. But I think sometimes we just think, oh, yeah, it looks good. Therefore, they're doing it the way I want them to do it. Or therefore, I don't need to constrain them further to get a particular adaptation. One of the um, one of the things too, you know, you're a coach or a clinician, you're working so hard on mechanics, and orange cone doesn't defend you. It's mm -hmm. it's a whole entire different environment when you're, you know. So don't get me wrong. Like I, uh, 
I spent some time in the Division One college. So when they had their NFL pro days, we're training a, a 5-10-5 drill and we're, we're working on the mechanics, the steps. We're training to shave tens of seconds, a tenth of a right. second, a tenth of a second off of it because it's important at that point, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, those those cones aren't defending. So if you're out there and you're trying to work on like change of direction mechanics and all of a sudden a, de- a defender steps in or moves unexpectedly, like if you're not conditioned to handle that, that's how you roll an ankle. That's how you you know, hyperextended knee if you come down funny. Like, even if you want to address the mechanics of certain sprint, sprinting drills and it's impossible in an entirely controlled environment when somebody, even like most gyms have turf. Sometimes you're playing on grass. Sometimes you're playing on hardwood floors. Like, no matter what, the environment is so different that there's just the carryover for even, even if the move, improving the movement quality was the way to go about it, it's almost impossible in the gym setting to do it. So it just, I don't know, like high school and college kids don't need more foot contacts in the gym really either. They get plenty in practice. Like just totally. Yeah. Yeah. My, one of my mentors is a guy named Ryan Bogus out of headquarters PT in Oregon. And he always says that the definition of agility is the ability to manage variability. And I love that, that concept of reframing it from like a five ten five, which is not, measuring the ability to manage variability at all <laughs> um or it does nothing to do right with decision making responding in the moment it's literally just it's so arbitrary so one of the things that i want to touch upon i mean we kind of touched upon the environmental thing but it's it's the queuing so i think in a dynamical systems theory approach i think this becomes the most important piece maybe that that kind of differs i think you know the mental components of it and stuff too so maybe we'll get into like some of that stuff but like typically if you have a i don't don't know how to call it maybe a more we'll call more biomechanical model Mm -hmm. the coach tends to have this one way to be shown how to move and like i said like i don't want to be misunderstood because like i teach the list a very specific way because torque matters and how we move that barbell matter um, in terms of lifting the most weight. However, they got to kind of figure it out on their own as opposed to just being so reliant upon my words to accomplish those tasks. And lifting weights is a far more simple task than lots of other athletic type of movements. So yeah. maybe if you could go over how, like in those situations, in the rehab center with the basketball players or whatever, how you use QN. Yeah, I love that question. Um, I think you hit on something that I just want to like draw out too is that idea with your power lifters, right? You're trying to create a really deep attractor well. Whereas with a field sport athlete, maybe we don't want a really deep attractor well, right? For certain tasks. Um, But when it comes to cueing, something that has I've really changed just in the past couple years is the idea of giving a cue and then asking for their feedback. So, so really simple example is a squat, right? If I want to change their stance, I won't tell them, oh, I'm changing it. I used to just educate, right? I want to change this because X, Y, and Z. Instead, I say, hey, we're going to try a modification. And after you, you, you're going to do three reps, and then I want you to tell me, does it feel better, worse, or same? And so, you know, maybe it's just like turn your toes out a little bit. 
all right, hit three reps, tell me what you think. And just sort of inviting the, the patient or athlete into that process of how this feels to you also matters. Um, and I also want you to have some sense of awareness of what this overall movement feels like um, has been really helpful. And then also really trying to limit myself to like one cue um, and just see what happens and not make a snap judgment off of the first rep. And so sometimes, you know, the first, I think in the past, if the first rep looked kind of janky or it wasn't what I was aiming for with that cue, I would jump in and provide a second cue. Yeah. And now I just kind of see like, okay, what's the second and third and fourth one going to look like? Because maybe they sort it out and then they get it, or maybe it wasn't a good cue for me. Um, or maybe I was cueing something that I don't actually want to happen based on their presentation. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I used to be the same way when I was coaching, like every rep that broke down you give them some type of feedback even if it was a multiple rep um multiple reps set i think you know to keep on that topic there i think as coaches right like we all know progressive overload is important but i think what people mistake sometimes is like technical efficiency and increase in it is progressive overload so i'm just going to make this up let's say we're doing 25 squat reps mm -hmm. and 15 of them look how I would like them to look in terms of like performance of a squat that's going to transfer over to a, a heavier lift. In a lot of cases, I'll leave the weights the exact same and we'll come in the following week and then maybe now 20 out of 25 look better. Like you don't necessarily have to just always increase something. Like you can repeat the same things a few times and still see quite a bit of progress. Like part of it is letting them learn on their own at their yes. own pace. Like we had these like, Oh, because week one, we did this week two, we have to do this. And it's like, no, not necessarily. And I don't, I don't necessarily care about their feel, their feedback and how it feels. Cause I can see the feedback is mm -hmm. there. So we do a lot of like max effort lifts. So if they're lifting a heavy single, I get that performance feedback. I get the technique feedback. Um, I also, right. so we use, our, we use RPEs as a monitoring tool. So if we have, you know, if I have a guy who squats 600 pounds and all of a sudden a you know, a 600 pound squat with his feet in a medium stance is a RPE nine, but I widen his stance and it's RPE nine and a half. I know it's harder and I can see the numbers going down and I can see, so like it helps me identify weaknesses. And then we talk about like where we're going from there um, in terms of that type of stuff. But I think one of the biggest things with the dynamical systems theory approach is making sure that they're learning at their own pace and you're not just throwing new stuff at them when they're not ready. because some people are just better athletes than others. Some are more gifted than others. Some learn faster than others. Um, and some and are I, more comfortable really with failure than others, right? I think that's our job as coaches to yeah. educate on expectations, right? So like powerlifting is a sport, you're going to fail a lot more than you're going to succeed. You're training hard for maybe adding five pounds per lift each year. So there's going to be a lot of you know, when you go to a competition, you might compete one or two times. You don't get a lot of opportunities to display you know, your best days and strengths kind of interesting because it's not, you know, you could hit something in the gym and then never hit it again for the rest of your entire lifting career. Like, so there's that nonlinearity of it and the lack of actual competitions that people tend to do leaves a lot of room for failure. So I think it's our job as coaches, clinicians, whatever you do is to guide those expectations. So one of the things that I always tell my lifters is it's not a sport about hitting PRs. It's a sport about stacking the deck in your favor to get an opportunity 
at a PR attempt. And the more opportunities that you give yourself, the better chance you're going to have of succeeding in the long run. So this includes your attention, your focus, your sleep, your nutrition. Every rep matters. The open, the empty bar plays a role in you getting better. It's, it's making sure everything feels right. It's starting to groove a pattern, like doing all of the things that you're supposed to do. Worry about the next rep, not the PR. Like if you stack those decks in your favor and you give yourself more opportunities to succeed, you're more likely to succeed in the long run. But you can't succeed without failing along the way. Like error teaches us. And this is, yes. I think, an important, I think it's an important part of a dynamical systems theory model is when you fail something, you're going to fucking pay attention because it's like, so we'll use like a high bar wide stand squat in the stability of it. So if you're pitching forward a lot, coming out of a hole in the squat, and you put the feet wider and the bar a little bit more up because the torso is so vertical, you're going to feel that like horizontal displacement a lot more. And you'll see people like dump weights. They'll <laughs> like, it almost feels like the world is turning upside down and it's like, oh shit, I got to figure this out. So like making sure we leave those positions in for a long enough period of time where they actually can figure it out. We're not just changing it to change it type of thing. Um, right. No, go ahead if you if you got something. Yeah, I was just say like creating that, like giving the cha- them a chance to create a new context for the movement, right? That, oh, this is what it feels like to stay upright. Oh, now I can consistently execute it. Not just like, oh, it's time to change it because you're getting bored. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's something too with coaching and just even educating, especially from a rehab perspective. You know, I was working with uh, somebody the other day via a remote consult and he used to be an Olympic lifter, has had like this long history of knee stuff that's been, from what I can tell, really horribly mismanaged by clinicians and ended up with bilateral PRP injections in his quad tendons. He's like 23. Um, but anyway, I said to him, you know, for what we're doing at this stage of rehab and you with your limited equipment, I said, I could give you sets and reps that really doesn't matter as much right now as making sure we're just hitting intensity and loading your quads. I'm like, I'm not going to give you a bunch of extra fluff because I don't, number one, I don't want you organizing away from using your quad, which is probably what you've been doing for the past six years. Um, So yeah, you're going to get bored doing a lot of isometric leg extensions in your house at different joint angles. Um, But really like you just need to be hitting intensity at this point. Like, I don't care how many reps it takes you to, I just want you consistently hitting an RPE of eight. Um, And so it was just kind of really interesting, like setting those expectations for him of this is a process, right? And it's going to be boring because we have to constrain it so that you have to use your quad and have to load the tendon um, versus giving you more options to move and explore movement. It's like, nope, right now we literally just want to load a particular structure. And that's the most important thing in your rehab. Yeah, and there's there's uh, there's layers to it, right? So you're going to start there, and eventually you're going to open it up a little bit more, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. And so then at a follow-up visit, you know, one thing we started doing just to, like, help him, I think, stay engaged, too, is, okay, now that he's doing single leg sit-to-stands from his chair, go ahead and wear your lifters with them, you know? Um, that adds meaning to him right from a cognitive perspective but it also is biasing things a little bit more towards his quads so i'm like that's a win-win um i think being able to think about those things and remembering that the cognitive is kind of part of that you know the organism in our nice little triangle of organism task environment like 
taking the whole person into consideration as well. Yeah, I like that idea about the shoes to kind of draw that connection. That's good. Um, yeah, and so like now one of his other things is he gets a broom and it's part of his active warm up. Put your lifters on, squat to like a little bit above parallel where you're comfortable, and let's hit some sats press. Like just getting you in a you know bilateral like unweighted air squat is not going to be driving adaptation for him at this point, but it's meaningful, right? And I think. Um, being able to bring some salience in rehab is really important to kind of addressing that whole person. Absolutely. And as always, you can always tie in some visualization, right? So even though he's only squatting a broomstick, like if you're visualizing yourself hitting those bigger weights and like, that's what I mean. Like every repetition is an opportunity regardless of the circumstance. So even if, totally. if even if you can't load it, like in your mind, load that up and start preparing yourself for when you're ready. Cause I think like even coming back from an injury, like the more you kind of go through that process in your mind, the more that fear kind of goes away and that mental aspect of training. So we used to do, so I was coached by Shaco for three years. So we did a lot of uh, like some maximal volume type stuff and we would test our lifts like three weeks out from a competition, but it was giving people like hardcore anxiety at times, which was stressing me out. And I was like, we got to find a way to kind of elicit more of a competition style atmosphere into our training. I did a podcast with Keith Davids a while ago now, and he had said like training should have consequences. Like whether it's missing a rep, whether there's, you know, that psychological arousal, the fear, uh, like it needs to have consequences and it needs to have consequences that are similar to competition in order for like those skills to transfer over. So it's why we do a lot of heavy singles. We we use a ton of variability within our, our training, but we do a lot of heavy singles. And it's for those reasons that it brings about that competition style atmosphere. And as a coach, for me, like all weaknesses are going to be mental, physical, or technical. So even though I was kind of like bashing on a biomechanical model, like some of these older lifters would be like, oh, if this happens in the lift, it's a weakness in this muscle. Now, there was a period of time where I kind of like threw that away, but kind of came back around to be like, maybe, but it could be a bunch of other things also. Um, so right. it's like part of a, a larger picture. So one of the things that if I have a lifter that doesn't compete very well, like if they have, if their weakness lies in their like mentality and the way that they, they get scared with heavier weights, I'll change the atmosphere with the way that I act. So as a coach, I'm not always going to be, I'm very, very rarely ever encouraging, but like for them, I might yell at them a little more. I might like stir the pot and create a little bit more of that psychological arousal to force them to figure out how to deal with their shit. And <laughs> like, I know it sounds terrible, but as a, as a coach, like we can supply so much emotion into a, a training scenario that can become much more like that can help them become more game ready. I think in a lot of cases, this is probably even more true in like a rehab setting where it's all this, it's very like, oh, you're doing great, you're doing great, you're doing great. But then all of a sudden when the atmosphere switches to a much more intense, aggressive, competitive environment, you see these like relapses and injuries and stuff. And I think part of that is just, it's the mental aspect of it. They're just not mentally prepared to be thrown in the fire like that and um i'd like to hear how you will go you go about in that rehab process of addressing like those those mental pieces 
Yeah, I think that's so key. And I love what you say about kind of reading the athlete and is this somebody who needs to be pushed in that way? I remember having multiple light bulb moments working with high school boys, realizing like they need a little bit of smack talk in their life, even if they are, you know, four weeks post-op <laughs> um, and finding what is something that's in their program that I feel comfortable with them, like really fighting for and pushing for. Um, and how can I ver yeah, verbally create that kind of emotional environment, whether that's, you know, getting two kids in clinic who are maybe there for different things, but doing similar exercises to start feeding off each other a little bit, whether that's me, you know, just pushing them like, oh, come on, man. Um, or just teasing them, whatever the case may be. But it's, there's definitely a little bit of an art there, right? In reading the, the client or the patient, see like, is this person going to respond well to this? Um, because some people would not respond well to that, right? Um, right? So yeah, that's that's a fine line to walk, I think. And it, I think it's part of what makes it fun, though, is trying to figure out the answer to that question of how do I prime the environment to help this person uh, perform? One of the, um, I tried to be a lot more like flexible with the way that I coached in terms of like, athlete personality or whatnot but what i realized was the second i tried to start wearing a bunch of different hats i was a watered down version of different people and the only person i could be really great at being was myself so i've come to realize that like yes the coach athlete relationship is arguably the most important aspect of the entire training model but sometimes like you know just like on a dating app sometimes you're swiping left like you yeah. can't Sometimes it's just not a good fit. You, you got to know when to, when to be able to, you know, I'm just going to keep that same analogy. When to swipe left, that's the bad one, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you got to know when to pass somebody on. Um, yeah. Because a different personality might, might just be more fitting. And I think that's something that takes time to find your voice as a coach or clinician, but also is a good reminder for younger coaches and clinicians, you Say when I'm in a clinical rotation, I treat the people that are on my schedule, right? Um, and yeah, I definitely think there's something to be said for, do we mesh or don't we mesh? And if we don't mesh, you're going to get more out of rehab or coaching if you, you're training, if you're with somebody that you mesh with. So yeah, I totally agree with that. And for me, like, I feel like high school, college girls is one patient demographic that like, I just don't get like. I struggle <laughs> big time to connect like they just I was one not that long ago does not just don't make sense to me but I have two little brothers you know that are five and eight years younger than me to give me all the high school college boys because it just most of the time clicks a lot better <laughs> it's just kind of funny I, how your life experiences can shape that I coached high school high school I, it was mostly boys but there were some girls and stuff too but uh I loved coaching the high school kids because they're just like dumb and don't know anything. And like, they're just awkward. And I don't know, we had a, we had a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, that's a group yeah. that I could do in this training. That's why it makes me laugh. Cause I just like, they are, they're like awkward and like, you just give them shit and they just don't care. It's uh, yeah, it's fun. And it's uh, funny too, to see how different personalities that comes out differently. Like one of my clinical instructors works with primarily ACL reconstruction patients um and so he works with a ton of high school and college girls and he's like 
they work so hard. They're so great. I'm like, you've got something going on that I don't. (laughs) The way you connect with them is really different. And I haven't figured out how to bridge that gap. (laughs) So one of the, uh, so it's kind of getting back to the whole like weaknesses thing. So one of the things that I really like about a dynamical systems theory is if, if you rely so heavily on like programming sets, reps, how you're undulating those, and you're kind of, you're so apt to change the things that you can actually measure, right? I think data collection has gotten out of control to the point where we allow the data to kind of do the programming instead of the experience of the coach and like blending a science and an art with it. So one of the things that like, obviously with powerlifting, like occasionally people's like knees, elbows, backs, they get a little dinged up. But if you view it and you look at everything, right? Where you got mental, physical, technical pieces that you can work on. Even if somebody can't, let's say they're in a, I'm making this up, like in a boot or something and they can't bench and they can't squat and they can't deadlift, but they could do a seated overhead press. We're going to find a way to compete in that seated overhead press. If, you know, whether it's, you know, with Corona, you have limited equipment and stuff, we're going to compete doing AMRAPs. We're going to like that competitive environment. We're going to keep, I don't even care if somebody literally, all they could do is bicep curl. We'll find a way to compete with bicep curl. We'll have arm wrestling contests if we, if we have to, to like keep that competitive piece. But you can always work on something. So like if they can't load it up, right, if their back hurts and they can only work up to a certain percentage, there's a lot of times you can make that load feel a little bit heavier and work on those technical aspects. So like pause squats, right? A mm-hmm. pause squat at 50% is a lot heavier than just 50%. So you can find these ways to like manipulate the loads to keep them in the game and to keep like doing the things that you need to do. And like the challenges sometimes can just be, well, I want to see... I don't know, making stuff like the knees stay out on all the reps or something. Right. But it, yeah. it gives you these guidelines to follow where in a lot of cases, I think what happens is somebody gets a little dinged up and it's like, they just don't know where to go. And it becomes this, like, they go back to, they go see somebody and it's like your athletic training friend who puts them on a table and then they're doing bird dogs for the next four weeks, even though this person squats 700 pounds. Right. Like, <laughs> and, then, and then it just becomes like, to me, if you get somebody who's competitive and they can lift that much weight and you start unloading them, as soon as you give them the green light, they're going to want to go. And like, they're just not, they've lost fitness and the rehab process should be at least trying to maintain as much fitness as humanly possible. So you can get back to regular training, especially with a competitive athlete, because they're going to, they're going to basically my job as a coach in the beginning is to protect them from themselves. Um, but it gets really difficult to do if the rehab process isn't manipulated around that individual, their personality, the sport that they play, like all, all of those things. And maybe you could touch upon that a little bit. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think so much of that difference in mindset comes from this, you know, are we believing that pain is the result of these particular dysfunctions? Or do we understand that pain is a part of the process? Like I like the language you use of it get, you know, getting dinged up, right? Or like I'll tell patients, you know, oh, I think it's cranky. You know, I think your knee is just a little cranky right now. Um, And are we establishing, right, the threshold of, okay, so you can't squat as much as you want to be squatting, but we know you can consistently hit three reps at in this range, whether, you know, that's percentage or just the weight or, you know, depending on their experience. Um, So that gives us a starting point. I think even just both keeping it competitive, but also setting that expectation of, 
we're going to do as much as we can within certain parameters, whether that's with respect to tissue healing or just trying to desensitize the system. Um, but we're on board, right? Of we're doing as much as we can to maintain intensity until you get back to where your know, normal training. Um, and, and I, I do want to make a disclaimer too. We're not like saying that no matter what, you should just like train through things. There are times where like taking a little bit of a break and just doing some like going for a walk, even at times, if you're, you know, you know, oh yeah. You know, like there's, it's situational, situationally dependent for sure. Yeah, and I do think like sometimes training or through or around something almost is more frustrating than not training at all. Uh, I experienced that recently. I broke my radial head and my elbow snowboarding, and it got to the point where it's just like I was. I had limited equipment because I was with coronavirus, right? And I was at a friend's house, and she did have a barbell. Like I couldn't even like RDL. 95 pounds without my elbow just super flaring up like any I didn't even have full extension back and I finally got to the point where I was like I'm sick of doing things with my right hand and trying to train around this I'm just not gonna I'm just not I'm just sick of it I gave up and I stepped away I think it was like probably a solid six weeks I'm like I'm just not gonna try and hold anything heavy I'm just gonna try and you know, do some little like tricep isometrics get it there and my first day back deadlifting, I was deadlifting much, like, enough that I was probably getting a training effect um, overall. And my elbow was fine. Like, I think it just needed a chance to calm the F down. And, you know, I think my, my brain needed a chance to calm the F down, too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's two sides to that coin, depending on the person, too, right? Like, so a lot of the... Like we have some very high level power lifters in the, in the group. And if they get hurt and they can't power lift, that's a loss of their identity. So finding a way yeah. to, to keep them involved is extremely important. So like, I mean, there's been times we've done like half range of motion, pin squats and loaded it up type of thing. Cause it's completely pain free. Like even if it's them just being in the gym, helping out other people, um, you know, if they can give handoffs or they can like whatever it may be, like finding a way to make sure that they maintain their identity of like lifting and stuff. Um, to me, is it's one of the more like important things. I think a lot of times what I've seen from so there's a reason why I use like Zach and Steph, right, as physical mm -hmm. therapists. So I don't have these personal problems anymore, but there there are moments in time where you'll have you know a physical therapist or an ortho or somebody be like oh no you have to stop lifting for six weeks and it's like you don't you can't remove this person like all of their friends are they lift with their friends they compete they like if you ask them what they do they're gonna say i am a power lifter they identify with the sport and like removing that that's like I mean, you're literally removing their identity, right? You're taking their self away. And that's like what I really like about like dynamical systems theory is it gives like as a coach and you do the art of coaching, like I'm always big on like powerlifting can teach you a lot of life lessons, like it can teach you to be disciplined, teach you to be a lot, a lot tougher than what you are. And, you know, to be really competitive, it does come down to who's willing to train through a little bit more pain than somebody else, right? Not being afraid of it and learning. How to be smart right pissing it off can obviously be a problem at times and stuff too like there's a lot of like lessons that come from it. and i think it just it allows you to you're not just building 
the squat bench and the deadlift, you're building a person, right? And especially if they're starting in their 20s, they're kind of new in their field, like you're giving them confidence, you're giving them mental toughness. The way that we train, so I say like my programming, it's a thought process, it's not, it's not a program. So like we have to have conversation and they have to make decisions. So it forces them to make quick decisions. It forces them to be accountable. Like their total is on them. It's not on me. I'm not lifting weights. I'm not making sure I go to bed on time. Like there's a whole piece of their attention, their focus, put your fucking phones down, train. Like there's all of these things that go into building up, not just a total for the sport, but also like into the person. And I think for me, it's allowed me to develop that art of coaching a lot better by having that understanding that piece of it. Like this is a person in front of you and yeah, maybe they're never going to be a world champion powerlifter, but how do we get them to be the best powerlifter that they can be while learning some life lessons along the way? And I would imagine you've had similar experiences in a rehab. Yeah, for sure. And as you're talking about that, it makes me think of, you know, the three tenets of Gabrielle Wolf's optimal theory, the two that really stand on the idea of like autonomy, right? And then also that enhanced expectancy. So like what you're describing is building in systems that are like providing opportunity for them to exercise autonomy over their training, to take ownership of their training, whether that's, yeah, getting off my phone or like in my case, I literally set an alarm on my Fitbit for my sets, right? So I don't get derailed or sidetracked or whatever in between sets of a main lift. Um, yeah, is that very much encouraging people to take ownership and then also setting them up for success, right? And so providing that education, like, hey, like, you're not making as much progress as we thought, but like, let's, you know, are we addressing the low hanging fruit in your life? Um, whether that is sleep, like you mentioned, or, you know, with some athletes, like, do they, do they have study skills? Um, do they know how to look and, you know, I had one kid who didn't even like keep a calendar of when stuff was due. He would just log onto the portal and be like, oh shit, I have 10 pages of writing I have to turn in tomorrow. So I'm gonna pull an all nighter and then he'd come into rehab and would have lost 20 degrees of range of motion in his hip from not sleeping and being stressed. Um, so yeah, just like addressing that low hanging fruit in their life, but also really putting the onus on them. I think, yeah, that's so important. And again, dynamical systems gives a framework where that stuff matters and it i think for me what it really did is it just it made sure that i was paying attention to that stuff do you know who um you're probably not gonna know who this is but there'll be some serious brownie points if you do do you know who terry brands is nope so he's an olympic wrestler for the united states and so he was one of the higher ranked wrestlers uh his first attempt at making an Olympic team and he lost. And so there's this video I share it with my, my team because I feel this is like, it explains the epitome of my coaching style. So he goes into his locker room and his dad meets him in his locker room and his dad just utters these words to him. He goes, you just lost, you gotta figure it out. That was it. That was the entire conversation. But then the next four years, like he fixed his training. He kind of like, you were saying he took care of that low hanging fruit plus some, and he came back and he made him made the Olympic team. And I mean, he's one of the more decorated wrestlers in the history of the, the sport for America, but the whole, you got to figure it out. And like, that is a, uh, part of my coaching style at times when like, I think 
and you probably run into this even in the rehab setting. So I'll have a lifter and I send them like what I, what I want the technique to look like. And like, I'll give them feedback on their lifts and stuff. So, you know, it might be, you're flaring your elbows a little bit too much off the chest on the bench press or something like that. Well, how do, how do I fix that? You figure it out. Like, right. Don't you know, <laughs> like, I mean, obviously I'll be like, you know, basically you're just, you're losing tension. You got to stay tight. Here's some cues or whatever type of things. Mm -hmm. But like, it takes time to figure it out. It's not like, I think in a lot of cases, what they wait for is to wait for my words to fix their problems. And it's like, nope, that's not how, and obviously like I, I'll give them exercises that like will really like punish some of that stuff, like concentric only bench press off pins. Like if your elbow flares aggressive, you're not going to get enough speed to move it off the pins. So you'll have to figure it out. And like, that's where like, training with consequences, right? Like you will fail a rep if you do it the way that you're doing it now. So you got to figure it out. Yeah. But they rely so heavily sometimes on me and then they'll film their sets, right? We're going to get in. I want to talk about like having that perfectionist attitude, right? Because like error teaches us this variability in moving. You don't even move the same way twice, but they'll look at their video and be like, what the fuck? My technique still sucks. I can't do it. And like, I almost expect every rep to look perfect, but that's not how learning happens. Like even the principle of dynamic organization says that the body's always searching for a more efficient way to complete a task. Like that learning process of the body to move more efficiently never ends. So it's never going to be like all of a sudden you're going to wake up one day and be like, you know what? I got perfect technique and I can just do these things. So um, maybe if you could just touch upon not relying, you know, perfectionist attitude, not relying so heavily on somebody's words and just like going through the process of like, because I'm sure you deal with people who've had like surgeries and they're kind of relearning some like maybe some typical movements that we take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I think a great example of that is anybody post-op trying to walk, right? And I think the typical maybe approach in PT is we call it gait training and we think that it's some this like great big skilled intervention because we're telling the person, push your knee straight as you step on the, that foot or some other like stupid cue. Um, and I think number one, setting the expectation of it's not going to be perfect. Number two, setting the expectation of nobody has to learn how to limp, right? Like we all just self-organize to accommodate whatever's either hurt or incapable of producing force or whatever the case may be. So learning to not limp is going to be hard. Um, and then finally explaining, okay, this is something that is actually governed at the spinal cord level not at the brain level necessarily. So you thinking about it while you're doing it isn't necessarily going to fix this in a meaningful way. And I think that's when the light bulb kind of goes off of this like, wait, I'm not supposed to think about it. Um, and a great example of that, like thinking in terms of constraints is in patients who are post-stroke, their gait normalizes significantly if you put them say on a treadmill and speed it up as fast as they can tolerate their gait gets so much better. You know, somebody who has like hemiparesis, right? It was like one side of their body is super impacted by this stroke. You start speeding it up and that spinal cord kicks in and kind of overrides maybe a little bit of the um, descending modulation that was, you know, otherwise has been governing their gait since their stroke. I think the same is true, you know, even like in the hospital with patients um, who just had a knee replacement and you are not athletic and are 
trying to, you know, I had one clinical instructor be like, squeeze your butt, squeeze your quad, strike your heel. And the other like walking in like hospital socks and awkward shoes. So, like none of those things are helpful. I'm like, hey, pick a spot on the wall down there and let's see how fast you can walk. You know, or like, let's count to three. You're like, let's count your strides in threes. So, you know, one, two, three, you know, which, which leg lands on one will be different every time, which is a great way to like help them implicitly reorganize that a little bit. But yeah, so much of it is not me telling them to do something so much as maybe providing slight constraints that then allow them to figure it out. Yeah. And it's, and it's a learning process and it takes time. And I, I would imagine, I'm curious, have you ever had anybody where you've kind of thrown them on a treadmill like that and they were just scared to do it? Did their gait correct itself or did they kind of? Uh, yeah, actually I did it not that long ago with my grandpa who's I've been trying for like two years to get him to try this. I didn't put him on a treadmill. I was just like making him walk fast. Um, and he did not want to try it. He was like, I'm going to fall this, that, and the other. And then he called me like maybe a, a month ago and was, because he was so bored from coronavirus. He, after two years of me bugging him, finally decided to try it. <laughs> and he calls me and goes, oh my gosh, why have I never done this? <laughs> it was pretty funny, right? Because literally the only cue is walk as fast as you can. Um, and I've, I've done that with you know, people in the hospital, the nursing home too, or even I think like, you know, post-op ACL. Hey, stop looking at the ground. Let's even maybe you're still having, you know, crutches. Let's walk faster. Let's march. Uh, a really crazy one was a girl who had this just like very um, lengthy medical history. I think she'd had like 11 surgeries and six of them were on this affected side and had a CRPS, which is complex regional pain syndrome where you'll get this weird like neurovascular response almost unprompted where the affected limb will like suddenly swell and become red and be really uncomfortable and painful and so she had all sorts of weird gait um that she had learned over the, this lengthy history of, of injury and really disability and she was in her you know late 20s i think and i said to her hey we're gonna march and she's like what i was like we're gonna march and she's like why are we gonna march i was like just do it and she could march with no limp it was wild because she had hadn't done that movement in the context of her injuries and so she still knew how to self-organize to march like a normal healthy person and it's really interesting just to see that um, interaction really between brain and body right and the way motor learning occurs and is reinforced or not reinforced over time one of the um so this was in grad school we had we were doing an assessment of a video and there's this girl who was in an ATV accident and she, her foot was, I mean, it was pinned together. And I want to say broken lower limb too, and probably some other things like fractured pelvis. I forget exactly what it was. So she's in doing her rehab stuff. She's walking with this, like the craziest limp I've ever seen in my life. And so the teacher was like, I want you guys to basically like, you know, assess it, guess the, guess the reasoning for it. And everybody's coming up with, you know, a million different things. And all of a sudden, and this was like one of those like light bulb moments that we were talking about. And then all of a sudden he kind of gives us the rest of the information. Information. So she had got an infection in her foot after the surgery and had to have 
her big toe or maybe two toes removed. So it was causing her, obviously, like she wasn't able to push off the same way. So her gait was lar largely affected by it. And he's like, basically like, you can't put her toes back on. Like, this is how she has to walk. So like, it was one of those, like, you gotta be careful with how you try to assess these things and tell the, and tell everybody how they should do things because you know, the body will figure it out if it has to. And then like, it has those, you know, it does have that, that, that ability. And it was that moment yeah. for me was like, Oh shit. <laughs> like, you know, you do need to think a little bit deeper. Like it's, it's not so much what you know, it's what you don't know that becomes more yeah. important at times. So, you know, embracing that uncertainty and just being like, okay, I know these things, but I don't know these things. And you got to kind of work in the real world between the both of them. Yeah, and in the real world, it's helpful to instead of having this dichotomy of, you know, good movement versus bad movement or normal versus abnormal. Let's look at it as are they utilizing all the resources available to them, right? Because if she had her toes and was walking that way, she probably wouldn't be using all her resources available unless, say, there was like a neurological reason why she couldn't plant her flex through that big toe, right? But when right. you understand, like, oh, no, her gait is like that because she doesn't have this particular resource of, you know, great toe plantar flexion to kind of catapult her forward in gait, then it becomes like, oh, this is a pretty damn good solution that she's figured out to a very real movement problem. And I think having a framework that can be, allow us to be fluid in our understanding and assessment of movement is so helpful. Um, for then make, you know, guiding decisions about interventions, right? Because if I'm just looking at this is abnormal, I need to normalize her gait. Well, you're just going to bang your head against the wall with somebody like that. And it's not fair to them really at all. Right, exactly. And like you had mentioned attractor states earlier, right? So like you're always going to have these. So basically... You know, you had mentioned like you want a deep attractor well at times, but like you're going to get a deep attractor well of what you would consider a less than optimal movement pattern at times. And like to try to break down a deep attractor well is very, very difficult. So you were the one who was marching and could march without yeah. a, limp, a limp, right? You just were able to change the conditions enough where that deep attractor state of walking with that limp just finally went away, right? Yeah. So for powerlifting, right? So I'm going to just, so in, in the literature, right? If somebody has poor technique with a double hand, a two-handed backhand in tennis, they'll make them hold the tennis ball in one hand. So it just removes that old pattern completely yep. out of the mix. That's one way to do it. So in that case, if you're trying to correct a limp, let's say, how would you go about, because that's into that deep attractor well at that point, especially if the injury was prolonged. What are some options you have in a rehab setting to attack something like that? Yeah, I think doing a variant of the movement. I mean, kind of it ties in perfectly with your example earlier of somebody that gets that, you know, AP displacement in their back squat. So you put them high bar wide stance so they, who you know, have to, they kind of fail or they stay upright. Um, you know, with her, like, all right, we're going to march. Another I think, option would be you know, providing parameters of say, you know, hurdles in place or utilizing lines, or maybe we're moving in the frontal plane just to see, and there's some, going to be some trial and error, right? Because it's with something like gate. It's not just about managing torques. Um, so much as can we 
it's maybe even not even providing a constraint so much as it is, it is just providing a novel way of moving or maybe it's walking on their heels or maybe it's walking on their toes um maybe it's you know putting on some i've done this with some elderly ladies who love like uh big band music you know maybe it's putting on some music and we're doing a funky little dance shuffle thing to the music and then we're marching to the music and then we're walking to the music and oh by golly you don't have a limp anymore um and i think so much of that process is you know, setting the expectation for the person of hey we're going to do some different drills i don't want you to overthink it um we'll talk about it afterwards or you know, maybe in some context the person doesn't care they're just along to the ride <laughs> you're again reading the person in front of you but then be able to identify okay you know, have I checked the boxes, you know, number one, that they have the resources to change this movement, right? So they have their plantar flexion, their gait, they can get to terminal knee extension, you know, can they get to adequate knee flexion, hip extension, that sort of thing. Um, and then let's just sort of start playing with it to see what we can modify so that they can perform this task. And also asking the question, do I have a good reason for why I'm trying to change? the way they're performing the task of course. and does it matter to them right and I think in the case of that girl there were a lot of other factors going on and so she was I was very excited that she could march without a limp and saw that as um evidence that like okay we can maybe make some progress here and she was like I don't care if I can march I just wanted to stop hurting her oh it's starting to turn pink like I've done too much. And so I think we were just like on two, two totally different places. Um, so just, yeah, is it always that kind of meshing all the variables together and coming out with what's salient, um, what matters to them, to me, how do we marry those two? And is it worth it? <laughs> I want to use that as like a, a theoretical question here. So let's say yeah. you want to try to get rid of the limp and it's not for any like physical therapy but just to change a movement pattern right yeah and that's such a deep attractor well but they're in the gym with you two to three hours a week and you can get them basically 90 percent of the time in there doing something to not limp but how do you how do you get rid of that limp if that's what they're doing all the time on their own I mean, like, wouldn't, that, to... wouldn't that keep that attractor well really deep because they're always just they're always going to get pulled back into it because it becomes the plethora of the movement that they're doing totally and i think that's a case for like okay maybe for two weeks they're going to be walking with crutches so that they can walk normal I and i think you see that with like i, I think post-op acls is a great example i would rather kids stay on crutches a little bit longer and be full weight bearing and walking pretty normally versus gimping around on day four you know yeah. And I think that can be an interesting conversation too. You know, in that case, you're kind of trying to catch it before it happens. Um, whereas in the other case, you're saying, okay, maybe the way we really disrupt this is to not give you an opportunity to kind of <laughs> fall into that metaphorical well, so to speak. Yeah, I know that that's what I was trying to get at. Cause like a lot of times, like, you know, if you hit a plateau on the skill and you, or you just have that deep attractor, well, like just removing the thing altogether. Uh, for a period of time just helps it break down. And like, I've even used variability for the sake of variability. Like, why are we doing this squat? Because it's different than the other ones. And like, mm -hmm. we're just gonna keep changing it up 
just so like, you know, it's an example I use. I understand it's not this simple, but just so like, you know, your brain just gets a little confused on what to draw from. And then, you know, we can start like narrowing it down once we start like breaking it down. Like, you know, and I'm talking about like, usually we use very little variability, you know, like move the feet up a couple inches, move the bar up a couple inches. But like, I'll, right. I would do stupid shit in this point that's just like muscle confusion, so to speak. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Change it up. And I think in that experimentation, maybe that's how you find the entry point of like, oh, you're having more success with this variation than you have with others. So that's a great place to start. Yep. Yeah. The, um, and then we've had times too, like competing where it's just like, you know, somebody might. So one of the things that I really try to focus on is we don't have competition lifts until you have a competition. So we're going to do close mm -hmm. stance, medium stance, wide stance. We're going to do different grips. You're going to lift sumo, conventional, close stance, sumo, medium stance, wide stance, conventional, conventional heels together. Like we're going to move your feet all around because you don't have a competition lift yet. Because what I found was if people thought that they had a competition lift, right? So if I put competition deadlifts in there, they'd always pull sumo because they just assume that they pull more sumo. I had this one kid goes to test his sumo deadlift. It's like 50 pounds less than he's ever pulled before. I'm like, Dude, when was the last time you pulled conventions? Like a few weeks ago. And it was like with bands. So he really didn't like touch a ton of absolute weight. I'm like, fuck it. Just put your feet closer. Let's see what happens. He ends up hitting like a 25 pound all-time PR. It's like 75 pounds more than what he was capable, <laughs> capable of lifting sumo. So it's like, it's those things, right? Because the body's always self-organizing. It's always changing. And these strategies are emerging. And sometimes you just don't know. And if you don't give them enough variability, you can miss that because you just didn't put them in those positions to actually see that happen. So yeah. like, if I hadn't had him train conventional within the last, you know, 40 weeks type of thing, I probably wouldn't have let him do it. But where we came off a little three week wave of it, I was like, dude, try it, let's see what happens. And like, you know, you kind of alluded to that with like all those different like walking styles. And you kind of just said like, sometimes, you know, you give them a bunch of variability, you just find something to work with and like, I think that's a really important concept and it's not even just for like rehab or like there's performance outcomes that sometimes you just don't even realize are there. Yeah. And I think too, when we understand that movement is emergent, it takes us away from this, like, Oh, I'm going to provide a stimulus in hopes of getting a particular motor output. When you take that off the table and look at it more as instead of this sort of, if a then B, like oh i'm gonna do a and see what happens i think you will stumble into options that are really helpful for that person um and i you know one example that comes to mind is you post that knee i actually got in trouble in a clinical rotation i was in the hospital and this person wasn't straightening their knee very much and that's really important for gait and also just from a um, metabolic cost perspective right if you can't get your knee all the way straight, you're always having this like extension moment, right? At the, at the yeah. knee. Um, and so I had this person in their walker doing heel raises because I think anybody that's ever done heel raises knows pretty weird and awkward to do it with your knees bent. Like it's just not, doesn't feel super natural to do it with your knees bent. And sure enough, they like, whoop, their knee pops straight. And I said, awesome. Like, now I want you to walk going up on your tiptoes a little bit, you know, with each step, like exaggerate it. So they're kind of like, okay, like you're a student, whatever. And they do it and they're getting their knee straight. 
And I was like, okay, now walk normal, as normal as you can. It was my cue. And they start walking. And what did my clinical instructor do? She pulled me aside later and was like, I am not okay with you giving someone heel raises the first day after the day of their knee surgery. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? It worked. <laughs> like, did we miss <laughs> the forest for the trees here? That person was walking without a limp. Also, you know, this 250 pound man just got himself out of bed without us. So like, I think that was probably more risky to his knee, <laughs> your knee replacement than uh, heel raises with the walker, right? He's going to walk downstairs at some point and like the force that's going to be on the knee joint is far more than he's going to. Yeah, like from. before he goes home raise. from the hospital. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like, oh my that, gosh, people. That stuff drives me nuts. The, yeah. uh, like when you don't, that's not even the topic. But yeah, it's like, but that's what training is, right? Training is sometimes, you know, like I said, it's a thought process. So like, I'll have people hit like PRs and weird angles sometimes. And it's like, I'm going to give you the exact opposite movement. Cause I'm just curious. I just want to see what happens. And like, sometimes it's like, okay, well, I'm going to throw some accommodating resistance on here. Cause I just want to see what happens. And that's literally what I tell them. And it, it's the honest to God truth. And sometimes, like, they surprise me, and it's way easier than I had expected. It's like, okay, like, that's good information for me to have. But, like, there's no perfect program. And I think this is probably true in a rehab setting as well, that if you, if you aren't aware of what you don't know and you don't seek out some answers sometimes and just kind of, like, put stuff down to be like, I just want to see how this plays out and you drop them like to me that's the most important data set that i can get sometimes it's like okay well this isn't a problem let's try something else and let's let's see how that goes and then it's like boom there's the thing we're going to work on for the next x amount of time you know until it's better or whatever um yeah, yeah. And i think too often everybody just relies on okay well week one we're going to do this and week two we're going to do this and it's like this pre-planned linear type of I don't know. It just doesn't mesh with the real world. And go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's so helpful to remember, like, rehab and training is a dichotomy that we've created, right? Like, the body doesn't know the difference. Maybe the priorities in training or the constraints are a little different based on, you know, the context of the injury or whatever. But stimulus is still stimulus and movement is still emergent either way. And so, yeah, exactly. You don't know until you test. Um, and sometimes you don't know that you need to test something. So if there's not a good reason not to do it, maybe you don't need a great reason to try it. Um, whether that's be, you know, for the sake of exposing a weakness of like, oh, we have an opportunity to like really build, build this particular movement or muscle or whatever, build it up. Or like your guy pulling conventional, oh, dang, <laughs> who knew that your conventional deadlift was so much better. That's an you know an opportunity to capitalize on as well. Yeah, and it actually allowed him to hit a total PR. And like, if we had never done that, he's looking at what he would consider a disappointing meet. So it, you turn what you think is a lackluster performance into like one of his better meets that he's that he's ever had, just because we were like, let's just see. But we, the more important thing I think, right, is we were prepared to give ourselves that opportunity to see, right? From training different angles, yeah. using that variability. Like if he had pulled sumo for six months, we wouldn't be in a position where we could see. You just, 
you're just stuck. You have a limited tool set, a limited skill set to be able to, to deal with a circumstance like that. But because we're prepared and we're trained at all different angles, we're strong and athletic in different angles, it gave him the opportunity. And that's, that's like, you know, to bring it full circle. That's why I say it's a sport that like, you need to give yourself, it's not about hitting that PR. It's about giving yourself the opportunity to attempt that PR. And the more opportunities you have, the more PRs you're going to hit over time. And I mean, I would imagine it's set up the same way in a rehab setting. Like if you can do this, you know, and eventually they're back to playing this sport. Totally. Absolutely. Right. It's not about, oh, you know, you can do some arbitrary exercise as much as it is. We know you can confidently face whatever it is you need to face whether that's in your daily life or your sport, um, and that you feel confident taking on things you haven't tried yet because you've been exposed to enough variability along the way. Right, exactly. Um, I think that's a good spot to stop. We've been talking for quite a while here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you're, you're pretty active on social media, so if you want to let everybody um, know where to, where to find you and stuff. Yeah, so Instagram is probably the easiest place to connect. It's just Taylor Eckel, E-C-K-E-L dot D-P-T. Um, and holler at me from there. <laughs> you can follow me. It's KW our team, Precision Powerlifting System. Stay strong, Boston. <laughs>